Well, these three chapters of the book of Titus that we've been studying together have been telling us, instructing us, what a gospel-centered church actually focuses their attention on. What is it that you should look for in a church to know that it is actually focused on the gospel itself? Well, obviously, to answer that question, you ought to be looking for the gospel, right? Interestingly, in the book, in chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, you see a rehearsal of the gospel. In chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, you see another rehearsal of the gospel. And in the middle of chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, you see the gospel again. It's as if there are gospel hubs throughout this book from which the spokes of church life tend to flow. The gospel is the center point. So then what are those spokes of gospel life that you look at to see how they're connected to and they're flowing from the gospel? If you really want to see the heart of the gospel in a church. Well, we learned in chapter one, you need gospel-centered leaders. Leaders who have a character and they have a kind of life that fits with the gospel and defends the gospel. In chapter two, we saw members of the church and how their character, their attitudes, their behaviors are fixed and focused around the gospel itself. Last week we looked into chapter 3 and we saw how we who are members of the church are also citizens in the culture and how it is as citizens of the culture we live, we behave, we think, we act, we have attitudes that fit with the message of the gospel. Everything about us, everything about our character, what we believe, how that belief shapes our, our life flows from the message of redemption. The message of redemption that means Jesus Christ alone in his grace applied to us because of the work he alone did on the cross is what saves us from the wrath of God. And believing that message in Christ is what transforms our life and fixes us on this saving message. We're headed to the end of the book now, and in Paul's final comments, he's still urging a gospel-centered approach to life, and especially church life. It's our passage this morning where we're going to see that Titus is urged to confidently communicate the truth of the gospel so that it produces in us and among us what I refer to here as a gospel-centered fellowship. All these churches on the island of Crete, brand new Christians, brand new churches, how are they going to make sure that this message that they have embraced that has saved them from sin is going to be what keeps them together in Christ? That's really what we're talking about here. These verses emphasize how we actually engage with each other in fellowship. Yes, I know as we read them, they are instructions to Titus particularly and what he should do immediately when he is present in these churches, how he should instruct them. But if you'll look at the, the influence of his teaching, it should that teaching should influence the people to interact with each other in a very particular way. The lasting legacy of these words that we're reading are not just written to Titus in the first century world, but to us to shape how what we do in the pulpit actually begins to 
shape the way we live and we guard and protect and live within our own fellowship together as a church family. We need to think through these carefully. It's not going to be easy. I wish there was an easy way to, to, to put it out there. Here's how we land on these issues. It's not going to be. It's going to be something we have to think about over and over again and in great detail and talk about together. But all of that thinking and talking and working it out among ourselves is going to actually enhance the way we fellowship together as a church. One of the hallmarks, chief hallmarks of a healthy church is biblical fellowship. We talk about that a lot around here. It is the biblical word in the Greek New Testament, koinonia, a word that you likely, if you've been around here long, you've heard us talk about that word. Koinonia is that New Testament word that defines a kind of partnership that we have, a unique relationship that we enjoy together. It refers to a kind of interaction with others that flows from a specific, unique relationship and partnership and participation together. I'm pretty sure that at the end of the game tonight, Patrick and Jalen are going to embrace. It'll look a little bit different than the way Patrick and Travis embrace, right? Because there's something unique about the relationship that's expressed in very clear obvious ways even more so should it be among us it should be clear that our relationship together as a people is not common it's unique it's deep it's committed it's loyal it's enthusiastic for each other over the truth of God where the gospel is central the fellowship among God's people will be very uniquely expressed. But the enjoyment of biblical fellowship is one of the most difficult aspects, I think, of church life to maintain. You probably know that to be true, too. We are a society, and it seems even more so right now, we're a society that is so very easily offended and very difficult with whom to reconcile. We tend to be quick to pick up our marbles and go somewhere else if we don't find immediate satisfaction in the relationships that are surrounding us. We often have trouble disagreeing without being disagreeable. That's the lasting hallmark of sin in us. And so, for a people who are prone to divide, how are we going to maintain and actually enjoy our fellowship together? Because we want that. We want an enjoyable fellowship together. That relationship that we uniquely share because of what Christ has done in us has to be preserved. It has to be propagated. We have to protect it. Now, while the verses here, verses 8 through 11, don't use the word koinonia, I think you'll see that the concepts behind it are all very prevalent here. So what's necessary for healthy, gospel-centered fellowship in a local church? There's always more that we could say about it than what is said here, but let's at least let these verses grip our hearts this morning to think about how we're going to live and protect and continue to maintain fellowship with each other. So our passage will detail for us three different actions that are necessary for developing and preserving a healthy gospel-centered fellowship. Three different actions to develop and preserve 
a healthy gospel-centered fellowship in a local church? What actions are we going to have to give attention to if we want to have and preserve and protect and expand real gospel-centered fellowship? Well, let's look at them together. Verse 8 tells us the first. It's the first action. We need to promote fellowship around the truth. If you want gospel-centered fellowship, you have to promote that fellowship around the truth. Look again at verse 8, and you'll see it. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. One of the fundamental mistakes that we often make when thinking about fellowship is to define it and to develop it and to evaluate it by our personal experience of the relationship rather than our common pursuit of truth. You know what I'm saying there? You will often hear people say this when fellowship is beginning to be compromised. You'll hear it in in the voices and you'll hear it in somewhat of the disappointment. I don't feel close to these people. I don't think we really click. The connection seems to be missing. And so we begin to define fellowship by our perception of the relationship rather than to define our fellowship by the truth of the scripture. Now, there's a reason why those feelings exist. And before we dismiss the relationships because of our perception, we have to first begin to say, why do those feelings exist there? Why do I feel those things? What is causing the disconnection and the lack of connection in the relationship? What is it? You really can't define and you really can't pursue true biblical fellowship merely on personal perception. It has to be more. So how do we promote this biblical fellowship around truth? Let me suggest two ways we do it. First, you communicate truth to each other. And this is what I want you to think about as we're talking through this idea. Communicate truth to each other. What avenues of biblical truth communication do you find yourself constantly flowing in? What avenues of biblical truth communication are you constantly putting yourself in the stream of? Paul says, this is a trustworthy statement concerning these things. What is a trustworthy statement? What are these things that he is to communicate confidently? Well, I think we know what those are if we're studying the passage carefully. It's what he just communicated in the verses prior. And what is that? You remember verses three through seven? It's a rehearsal of the gospel. For we also once were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. We didn't have any righteousness, did we? 
but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. That gospel message, those mountain peaks of biblical truth that save us from sin, that is a trustworthy statement. Why does he call it trustworthy? Because it is what you can, it is the kind of statements, the kind of truth that can bear the full weight of every relationship upon it. You speak it confidently because you are convinced that this truth has inspiration behind it. It comes directly from God. You speak confidently of this truth and you believe that it's trustworthy because you think as it's been given to us, it is without any error. It presumes this trustworthiness does a confidence that it has absolute authority because it comes from God directly. This confidence and this trustworthiness presumes that the scripture is also sufficient, that it will actually touch every avenue of your life that God intends for you to live for his purposes. It's sufficient. You can't speak confidently about it and it's not trustworthy if it's not inspired by God and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient for life because if it's not those things, how do you stand up and tell people this will bear the full weight of every relationship you have? No, you have to stand up and teach this word and this gospel message because it is absolutely trustworthy. What we have in the gospel holds up every relationship among us. Anything else that you would want to base your relationship on will end up being something other than the gospel if it's not based squarely on this. There isn't another message, there's not another truth, there's not anything else out there that is trustworthy like this is. And it's concerning these things. These things, the gospel message, but not just the gospel message. Do you remember what Paul has been telling the churches in Crete to do with the gospel message? They are to build their character on it. You are to confidently teach and preach and exhort these things, meaning you must live according to this gospel message. How do you live your life as a gospel-centered citizen? You do it in submission and obedience, ready for every good deed, maligning no one, peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Remember those verses in verses one through two? You do that because of the trustworthy statement of the gospel. And you speak them confidently. That means you don't waver. You have such confidence in this message and these things of how to live your life according to that message that it is spoken confidently. That's challenging. To speak confidently about that message means there's aspects of our life that probably don't fit with that message. There are aspects of our belief that may not fit with that message. And speaking confidently about them sometimes feels raw, doesn't it? It's challenging. We don't often like someone speaking confidently about our behavior that might not fit with the gospel. 
or our beliefs that might not be in line with the saving truth of Christ. Maybe we have responses to the truth of the gospel that are not fitting with what the message says. And you hear someone speak confidently about them and you you feel the tension, don't you? You feel that. You should. We should. Every time we sit here and we hear the word of God taught confidently, it's like the word is like a a brick wall. I often refer to it. We just keep running into this brick wall. It doesn't move, does it? Now, we're all over the place at times, but the truth doesn't move. And what you want from the pulpit and what you want from friendships and what you want from discipleship is truth that doesn't move. Because then it's trustworthy. You can build on it. And we have to get to a point where we're ready to hear truth confidently communicated to us. We have to constantly adjust our attitudes to say, is this really what I want to hear? Why would I want to hear it? Because it's good for my soul. I need it. My soul tends to waver and drift and I need need to be brought back and I need to come face to face with the reality as God sees reality. It tends to irritate us. We, we look at that confident speaker and we say, who do you think you are? You're no better than us. And there, there isn't any, any teacher of the Bible who is better than you are. But it's not the teacher that is the issue. It is the truth, isn't it? It's the truth. We need to hear confidently communicated truth on a regular basis. We need that publicly. We need that in our gatherings. We need to hear the truth preached with confidence, not wavering, not open to every whim and opportunity and thought and perception. Confident, stable truth. We need it publicly. So that means we have to listen humbly and patiently and personally to what's preached from the pulpit every week. What about attending an equipping class? And you're maybe attending a class like we have going on now that's a class maybe on the Holy Spirit or a class on evangelism and how to to be an effective evangelistic neighbor, a good neighbor. And you're hearing truth from the word that's teaching you these things and you're thinking, does my life fit in line with that? I need to hear that truth again. Maybe you're in a growth group and you're, you're hearing people talk about how they're applying or, or they're wrestling with the truth of this scripture and you're thinking, I, I need to hear that too. I, I've never thought of it that way and I, I probably need to think of it more clearly in that way myself. We need that. We also need it personally. And to be quite honest, there's only so much application, personal application that can be done from a pulpit to a group of 400 people. You know where it really gets tight and it really becomes helpful? One-on-one, sitting across the table from one one another and in a chair next to another person with an open Bible, reading, talking about the truth and where do the details of our life fit in relationship to that truth and two people confident in the truth not confident in themselves confident in the truth speaking these things over and over and over to each other builds healthy fellowship so there's many ways that we do this well 
I'm so thankful for the variety of men's and women's groups and classes and groups that we have that do this. But there's always more to be done and not everyone's involved in all of those things. We need to be here week in and week out so that the truth is communicated to us clearly. We need to put ourselves in the streams and the avenues of where truth is communicated to us regularly. Have you ever noticed you hear the truth communicated and you're like, I'm not sure I got it this time. Then you come back another week and you're thinking, okay, I get it a little more. You do it two or three times. You do it for a month or two months. You're like, "I'm I'm starting to understand this. I'm seeing where it's going. I hear that kind of testimony regularly from many people here. I remember one individual sharing with me after about five years of being here, he, he stopped me on an Easter Sunday. He says, I think I finally understand what you're doing. <laughs> after five years. I know some of you are like, I've been here longer than that and I'm still not sure. <laughs> well, keep coming. I think you'll, it'll click at some point. But you know that you, the more you put yourself in the stream of communicated truth, the more you, you find your life confronted by it, the more you begin to build relationships around that truth. You interact over that truth that we all heard together. What avenues have you placed yourself in where your heart will be regularly assaulted, instructed, counseled, and even consoled by confidently communicated truth? Or maybe we need to think about it a little bit differently. What avenues of biblical interaction are you avoiding? Or isolating yourself from? because you're not sure you want any more of it. That can't be healthy for your fellowship, your interaction with other believers. Where there's a lack of biblical truth being communicated, then the relationships that you foster, they'll be founded on something else. They will be. And whatever else you base your relationship on, it's not going to have that enduring, healthy effect that the truth will. So, You can surround yourself with people who share your interests, your preference, your hobbies, your stage of life. But if you define your fellowship by the mere enjoyment of those things, not the enjoyment of those things in connection with the truth, but merely those things, then the perception of fellowship will rise and fall very easily on whether you feel like all of those preferential issues are being addressed as you want them to be addressed. So it is worth us saying, in what ways are we pursuing, not just receiving, but pursuing a kind of fellowship that is based on the truth being communicated to us. But it's more than just receiving communicated truth. I want you to think about another way in which we we really promote fellowship around the truth. It's not just through receiving the truth communicated, but secondly, you have to apply the truth with each other. Not just communicate the truth to each other, you have to apply the truth with each other. Notice again in verse eight. So there's, there's truth that has to be communicated. This is a trustworthy statement, that's the gospel. Concerning these things, that's the life that's built on the gospel. I want you to speak confidently. Why? So that. Do you see the so that? If you like to write in your Bible, I would mark that. If you don't like to mark in your Bible, you should mark this one, all right? Circle it. So that. The so that's of the Bible are incredibly 
important. The purpose behind the communicated truth. So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. And these things, that is, receiving the truth and applying the truth that has been communicated to us, these things are good and profitable for men. The aim and purpose of gospel-centered fellowship is actually applying truth with each other. The aim of relationships with Christians is to apply the truth of God together in each other's lives. Yes, preaching, teaching, reading books together, talking through truth at lunch over coffee while watching the game or taking a walk must have as its end goal the usefulness of that truth. We don't just talk about truth just so we can shake our heads up and down and say, yep, I believe that and I think that's doctrinally right and you've, you've checked that one off and, and you're good for affirming that. That's good. We need to affirm right doctrine. We're all about that. That's not all that we're about though, is it? We're all about it, but that's not the total of what we're about. That rightly affirmed doctrine has to be used. And we're seeking to help each other use that truth in life. Now, I, I want to make a distinction. We have to make a distinction here. When we talk about applying the truth, it's not the application that is the truth. The truth is the truth. There will be a variety of ways in which different people will apply that truth in the different avenues of their life. As soon as you make the application the truth, you are moving towards legalism because you're beginning to define spirituality according to something that's not the truth. Does that make sense? You have to be careful. There's a number of ways to apply the same doctrinal truth. Different people are in different streams of life and going through different circumstances. It might look different. There's different people in different parts of the world that might apply the truth a bit differently. The application is not the truth the truth is, but we still have to talk about how we're applying it. That's why it's so difficult to just give you, all right, now here's the way to do it. Let me just give you three ways, five ways, six ways, 10 ways, 12 ways to do it. And you take your list of 12 ways or however many ways we give it and you say, this is the only way we can do it. Now what you have to do is this is where fellowship takes place. There's only so much that can be done in the pulpit. So it requires you intentionally, personally, and practically engaging in conversations and interactions with each other so that you apply the truth. And in fact, I think that's exactly what he says here. It has to be intentional. Do you see that in verse 8? Those who have believed God, Christians will be careful. Just focus on that. What does that mean? You're thoughtful. You're intentional. You're thinking in detail. You're careful about how you're going to take what has been communicated and to use it. That's intentionality. It's also interpersonal. You see, you are careful to engage to engage implies other people are involved. That means it's interpersonal. It's also practical. You are careful to engage in good deeds. Good deeds is the practice of right theology. 
It's the practice of healthy doctrine. It's what makes it good deeds, healthy deeds, right deeds. What would that look like? What would the practice, the careful, intentional, interpersonal practice of good deeds look like? Actually, the Bible is very clear on this. Not in how you're going to do it in specifics in your life, but in overarching ways. Have you ever read through the one another statements of the Bible? If you were to catalog and go through the New Testament and find out how many times we are instructed as Christians to live in particular ways with one another. There's at least 60 that I've found. At least 60. And if you started thinking about that, if you just took, say, say you met with a brother or sister for coffee this week, because that's what Christians do, they drink coffee when they disciple each other, right? You sit down for coffee, and you just picked one of them. And you thought, all right, how would we live this one out together? And you started thinking about that. What would the implication be here? And it's going to look different for a husband and wife than it would two friends, right? It's going to look different for a a parent and a child than it is just two of you who are sitting next to one another. So there's different applications, but what if you carefully thought about how to engage in that? What are those one another's? Well, I'm not going to give you all 60, but let me give you some starters Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another. What would that look like? Honor one another, Romans 12.10. That's in there too. There's like two one another's in one verse. It's really crazy. How would you honor one another biblically? Accept one another, Romans 15.7, which means you have to look at, okay, what ways am I tempted not to accept someone? Show tolerance for one another, Ephesians 4, 2. Or another way to put that one is put up with each other, Ephesians 4, 2. How do I do that one? Oh, someone's already applying it. I hear it. (laughs) Be kind to one another. Kindness looks like something in every given relationship. What does it look like in the relationships around you? Forgiving each other, Ephesians 4, 32. Be subject to one another, Ephesians 5.21. In what ways do you practice that? Serve one another, Galatians 5.13. Bear one another's burdens, Galatians 5.26. Sing to one another, Colossians 3.16. Encourage one another, Hebrews 3.13. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10.24. Confess your sins to one another, James 5.16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Think through that one. Be careful to engage in good deeds on that one, all right? Be careful. 1 Peter 5.14. You have to think through, how how do these one another statements apply to the expectations that you have of your spouse? Or as a parent to the responses you have of your children or the way that you pursue friendships with other people in the congregation or the reactions that you have to disappointments from church members, how would the one another's speak to those? The failures of those that you're counseling, the directness from those you're receiving counsel, 
and on and on and on, right? Yes, good deeds could include things like hospitality, the use of your resources, the inconvenience of your time spent with serving others, the invasion of what you prize as privacy being invaded. Those deeds could include patience with the doctrinally weak, confronting the doctrinally strong, Engaging the unengaged, encouraging the discouraged, exposing the sinful, those are good deeds. Feeding and clothing those who have very little, providing means for those who have less than you do, those are good deeds. Pursuing the uncomfortable aspects of parenting, there's so many of those, aren't there? Controlling your responses to your parents, there's so many of those too. Blessing the authorities who oppose you. Resisting the penchant for revenge. Do you see how taking the truth and thinking through it carefully, interpersonally, practically takes on a flavor of how it defines our relationships. It's how we begin to relate to each other. Now you... you, you don't have to do that at church. You don't have to do that with church people. You, you could avoid all of that. You could just come most weeks and come and sit, sing to whatever level you want to sing or listen. You can leave very quickly, go get back in your car, go back to your home, kind of do your thing and then come week after week and just do it like it were a religious entertainment. But the fellowship that you develop the relationships that you develop, what will they be like? See, what Titus is, is being urged to do is confidently teach the gospel, but do it so that the people of the church see how they're to engage in this life with each other. And that's what you're looking for in a gospel-centered church. And I wanna say, it is very difficult to put this together. It's very difficult to live it out consistently with each other for so many different reasons. But you've got to take and you've got to promote fellowship around the truth first and foremost. It's got to be around the truth. If it's not around the truth, what will it be? Something else. Well, that's the the first action that's necessary if we want to develop and preserve healthy, gospel-centered fellowship in a church. Let's look at the second. The second action necessary for good, healthy, gospel-centered fellowship in our church is found in verse nine. Preserve fellowship from divisive error. Preserve fellowship from divisive error. This is really interesting, I think. Here's the necessary step. It's a little, it's a little more negative than the previous one. The previous one is positive. Promote fellowship through the truth. Now you've got to preserve the fellowship from a divisive kind of error. Now, what kind of error are we talking about? I think there's four categories of error he describes here that we'll just move through fairly quickly, but four different categories of error we need to be watchful of, and they're probably not quite what you expect. What kind of error? Well, first, there's an error from unnecessary controversy. There's an error that comes from unnecessary controversy. Do you see it in verse nine? 
but avoid foolish controversies. Now, have you ever met someone who starts a controversy that thinks it's foolish? No, everyone who starts a controversy thinks there's a good reason to have the controversy. So none of them feel foolish. None of them seem foolish. So if you're a controversy starter, you're probably ready to defend your controversialness, right? We all are. But avoid foolish controversies. Foolish is the term moronos. It's the term from which we get moron. Foolish. Ignorant controversies. Debates that have no profitable ends. This is talking about those who engage in the controversy that really has no truth end to it. It's the people who can always point out what is wrong, but they're never quite sure of how it ends and what's the truth that ends the controversy. Or we get into arguments over implications of the scripture that have no end point to them. You say, well, I need to know what those are so I would avoid them. It is challenging. The term for foolish is usually connected to what is non-Christian. Controversies that are not tied to orthodox Christian belief. That's a foolish controversy. It's not tied to what is essential to being a Christian. Avoid getting involved in controversies that are not actually tied to what actually defines Christianity. You say, well, there's more things than just the the bare bones of what defines Christianity that's important. There are what we call sometimes secondary truths, tertiary truths, and those are important, aren't they? Yes, they are important. And they might make us distinct from others. There's a reason why we are Summit Woods Baptist Church and that differentiates us from the friends next door who are not Baptists but Methodists. And even more that differentiates us from the folks further down the road who are Mormon. And we're asking the question in those contexts, this is a great illustration I think just where we're located and who's next door to us. There are different degrees of which we will have fellowship or not have fellowship. One group does not teach the same thing about the gospel at all. In fact, they teach something that's very contrary to what the New Testament teaches about how it is to be made right in front of God. And so therefore, the fellowship that we have with them is non-existent. There's no relationship of unique relationship. We're not the same. We're not in the same religion. That's a false religion. But according to actual teachings of the Methodist Church, we might actually have more in common with how we define the gospel with them, certainly more than we would with those next door to us in the Mormon church. It's kind of what we're getting at. And it's not just avoid controversies for controversy's sake. Think about your attitude in it. Avoid even having a controversial spirit. An attitude that's always engaging in fellowship splitting. Fellowship splitting over issues that are more tied to preference than orthodoxy. Issues tied more to personal conviction than actual orthodoxy. I'm I'm curious if you're one of those that likes to engage in the debates with the folks that show up at your door to propagate false religions. 
You say, oh, I, I, I'm looking for the Jehovah's Witnesses to come. Yes, that's a, that's a false religion. They teach something different about what it means to be a Christian. I'm not saying that the people in and of themselves are bad. I'm saying that the religion itself and what it communicates truthfully about what it means to be a Christian is false in terms of how it relates to the New Testament. When they come to your door, what do you engage in debate about? If it's on all the nuances of their religion and anything other than the gospel itself, I'd say you're probably wasting your time. Why not just stick to the core issue? Why are they a false religion? They're not a false religion because of ancillary beliefs. If you get into a discussion on why Jesus was crucified on a stake and not a cross, you're wasting your time. If you're getting into a debate on whether he died or swooned, you might be wasting your time unless you're seeing how that's tied to what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. Because that's what makes them a false religion. So start there because their soul is at stake. It's not about winning the debate. It's not about persuading them simply because you're a better person at arguing. Their soul is at stake. According to what God says in the Bible, their soul is at stake. They believe something false. So don't, don't just pursue an ancillary argument for argument's sake. It's not going to help anybody. That's a foolish controversy. You're probably not going to resolve anything. You're not going to convince anybody. In fact, I, I found it more helpful to just stop the conversation with most of my Mormon friends and I said, listen, what really needs to happen here is you need to stop believing this. And here's why. The Bible says, and you say, well, what if they don't accept the Bible? The Bible says. The Bible says. This is what God says. And I'm going to keep the conversation right there. When you are given to endless controversies over empty ideas, you're likely going to not cultivate godly character. You're not going to breed a kind of response that fits with the gospel because you're preoccupied with the controversy more than you are cultivating God-centeredness. There's also an error from misused truths. There's error from unnecessary controversy. There's also error from misused truth. It comes from the word genealogies. The word genealogy likely is a reference to how rabbis would refer to the book of Genesis and its focus on genealogies that are found there. And they would read into them false allegorical uses and applications to categorize people as spiritual or not spiritual based on these genealogies. In other words, it's taking truth, things like genealogies that do have specific intention and specific meaning in the book of Genesis, primarily to show God's faithfulness to a covenant promise that he makes to a specific people. And you misuse it to say something the Bible never intended to say by that. So well, what would be an example? Well, you could take 1 Timothy 2 when it tells women not to come to church with braided hair and gold and jewels or 1 Peter 3 and don't let your adornment be the thing that uh, convinces your husband who's disobedient to the word. And you could, you could set up a whole doctrine that says wedding rings are wrong. Makeup is sinful. Jewelry is not of God. You could use those passages to do that, but they were never intended to say that. You could take 1 Corinthians 11 on head coverings 
And you could say every woman who comes into the place of worship has to have a specific head covering, even though nowhere else in the New Testament teaches that. And you're missing the whole point of what 1 Corinthians 11 teaches on issues of gender and affirming gender as God's design. So you can take something that the Bible teaches and you can misuse it. And it builds controversies among the church and you start defining people's spirituality according to those controversies. There's also error that fuels antagonism. Error that fuels antagonism. There's foolish controversies, genealogies, and strife. Strife. Where people are constantly pitting Christians against each other rather than making efforts to pursue unity around the truth. Exhibiting impatience and anger instead of kindness when discussing doctrinal matters. If the discussions over doctrine lead to strife rather than the pursuit of harmony over the truth, you have to wonder, what are we promoting? There's also error from misapplied truth. Error from misapplied truth, disputes about the law. People who suggest that the Old Testament law is necessary for our current diet or certain Jewish holidays are prescribed for Christian observance. If, if people say those kinds of things, they're actually missing the entire point of the old covenant law. And they're missing the entire point of the new covenant. And they're making incorrect applications of the law and causing disputes, determining what is spiritual or not spiritual over misapplied truth. You can get in debates over those things or you can just say, listen, here's what the Bible says, here's what it means, and here's why it means that. And so we need to apply it carefully this way and avoid those things. But if you find people who are trying to take truth that is misapplied and make it the standard by which we should live, it's going to kill fellowship. If you're constantly engaging in in investigations and arguments about all of these kinds of errors, the Bible says here it's unprofitable. There's no gospel benefit in it and it's worthless. There's no spiritual value in it. That's why we need to be careful as we're engaged in trying to be discerning about truth and error. We have to be careful in how we do that. There's all kinds of endless engaging of debates and disputes over unhelpful, unprofitable controversies to the point where it makes it almost impossible to listen to anyone. Have you noticed that? I believe we're to contend for the truth. Jude tells us to do that. But not to the degree that we're actually eating our own. Disparaging genuine believers with whom we have disagreements. Friends, responses to the COVID thing, those are probably not first order issues. Have you ever thought about the weaknesses of our historical heroes? The massive flaws that they had, doctrine that probably wasn't quite right. If we were to dismiss them over all of them, I'm not sure who we would listen to. 
What about Jonathan Edwards and slavery? John Owen and the massacre of the Irish? Augustine and his view of baptismal regeneration? Luther and his sinful views of the Jews? Calvin affirming cutting out the tongues of Baptists? Don't listen to him, right? (laughs) R.C. Sproul and infant baptism? We could go on. And yet every one of those names I just mentioned have made massive, helpful, ongoing contributions to the reformation of the, tr- of the church. And if we just put them all in the corner and said, don't listen to any of these because of their weaknesses, where would we be? What would fellowship be like? you'll find yourself by yourself. You won't have fellowship. Let's look at the third and final action that's necessary to develop and preserve healthy gospel-centered fellowship in a local church. Third, protect fellowship from divisive people. So there are divisive ideas that could be propagated among us, And you have to contend with some of that and you have to deal with it appropriately or to kill fellowship, but there are divisive people too. There are people who constantly promote these divisive ideas and you're going to have to deal with them because divisiveness kills fellowship. Notice verse 10. This is the hard stuff of church life right here. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning being self-condemned. That's hard, isn't it? I know there's always the possibility that we could get ourselves to a place where we're ignoring right theology because we want to avoid division. And I do understand that good theology will divide people in some ways. But are we to divide from each other over every theological difference? Those who create the controversy, I know they always see it as necessary, and some controversy is. But how do you know which ones are? I know for certain that those controversies that fixate on what it means to be a Christian, how the gospel is defined, is the most important one. Because that's what our souls are at stake over. How do you define the gospel? Nothing is more important than that one issue. Everything else rests on that. How do you define what it means to be a Christian? How you become a Christian? Is there any theology that steals away from the spiritual power that that preserves that gospel? You want to be careful with those things. And even as you do that, you want to make sure that your attitude in preservation of those things is not making you a kind of person who is unnecessarily divisive or factious. Now we are told here to reject a factious man after a first and second warning. A factious man, it's actually the first word in the sentence in verse 10. It's the emphasis, the factious person. It singles them out. This is the the person who keeps trying to stir up division among believers. 
seeking to divide people from one another, good people from each other. It's the person who pits true Christian against another true Christian. And anytime you create divisions around particular applications of the scripture when other applications could be viably, viable, it could be allowable biblically, or you create divisions within a local congregation over issues that are not core to what it means to be a Christian or live faithfully as a believer, when you divide people because of weaknesses or unwise associations or unhelpful recommendations, we tend to then make something other than the gospel primary. And so you find a person like that, you have to reject them. It's a word that's used a number of times in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, it says, have nothing to do with them. Or 1 Timothy 5, 11, refuse. That's how it's translated. Or 2 Timothy 2, 23, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. Ultimately, those who are trying to spurn controversy, factions are to be silenced. That's what elders are called to do in chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. Silence them so that they do not upset whole families. How do you do that? You do it quite redemptively. Did you notice that? After a first and a second warning, after a first and a second warning, you reject them. You confront with instruction. That's what the word warning means. You confront, you admonish with instruction. You're instructing in the truth and saying, I'm just warning you, the truth says you need to stop breeding this kind of factiousness in the church. And you do it once and you do it twice and then you congregationally reject them means that they don't attend the assembly. They're not a part of the assembly. They're not allowed to be a part of the assembly because they're creating the kinds of factions that would disrupt the assembly. Similar to Romans 16, 17, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn and turn away from them. You'll watch, divisive people tend to draw people to themselves and they'll create party spirits around themselves. They gain a hearing, they pit one group against another, they're willing to split the congregation over issues that aren't essential to the fellowship of the church and you can't let them continue. They will kill the fellowship of a church. You even see why you have to do it. Notice verse 11. You know that if you have someone like that, they are perverted they're warped they're not of good usefulness they're the bad apple that's about to spoil the whole lot they're perverted their divisiveness is sinning that's what he says here they are sinning the divisiveness itself is sin the gathering of people to themselves is sinful and they are self-condemned because they're exalting themselves as the standard of truth and pitting the controversy around themselves, splitting people with them at the hub so they're self-condemned. A first warning, a second warning, and you reject them. You say, well, well where's Matthew 18? Well, this isn't a Matthew 18 issue. Matthew 18 has a longer process when a brother or sister sins against you 
or there's a behavior that they're involved in, you try to win them personally. This is not that issue. This is not even the issue of 1 Corinthians 5 where sin is so rampant throughout the church and being affirmed by the entire congregation that you need to act on it and remove the sinful person immediately. That's not this issue either. This is a factious person who's trying to split the church. Warn them, call them to repentance. Warn them again with instruction and call them to repent and then reject. If you don't act, they will harm the fellowship. It's what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.23, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels and the Lord's bondservant should not be quarrelsome but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. In the end, the person who pushes division cannot remain in our fellowship if the fellowship is to remain healthy. And I get it. You can be so broad that you're open to everything. That's not helpful. You can be a congregation that just says no to anything. You're open to everything that comes along. And so you wonder, what does the church stand for? Where is truth? You can be so narrow too that you actually stand with no one. And before long you find yourself in your fellowship getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And you're almost left alone. Factious people wear that as a badge. They love to be the lone ranger. The one who actually stands for truth. A gospel-centered church thinks carefully about our fellowship. We love the truth. We preserve our fellowship around that truth. We're not going to compromise the truth. But we also have to watch for the kinds of errors that look to split us on things that are not fixed on the actual truth of Scripture. It's one thing to point out error. Can you also at the same time point to the truth that should be embraced? How are you cultivating true biblical fellowship? Guarding your heart from error? Keeping yourself from being a factious person? Constantly allowing your life to be instructed by the truth? If we would look to these things, and, and again, I'm just going to say again, they're hard to apply. But it's necessary for us to think them through and talk about them and work through them because what that does as we do it, it, it fosters the relationship around the truth. And we need that. We don't want to be the church that's always arguing with everyone and controversial on every single issue and always splitting from good people. We, we don't want that kind of reputation or attitude. And we also want to be a, truth who's, a church that's known for, you're going to hear the truth of Scripture here. And we're going to keep drawing ourselves back to that truth over and over again. We do it patiently and kindly and constantly with each other. And if we'll do that, I think we'll have a healthier church 
will maintain good biblical fellowship. And in fact, you need to look for that in a church if it's to be gospel-centered. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'll help us to look to fellowship around the truth. We pray that you'll give us wisdom in how we can preserve our fellowship from unnecessary controversies. I pray you will help us to protect our fellowship from divisive people. We, we want a congregation that will last. We want a congregation that flourishes. We want relationships that are built on the truth. So we pray that we'll constantly think about how are we fixated on the message of the gospel, the word of God, the truth of scripture, and how are we promoting it? How are we encouraging others in it? How are we walking with each other patiently in it? And Lord, would you do a work among us that is helpful and healthy? And we pray, Lord, for those in our fellowship here, those among us who are in the room who perhaps do not know Christ personally, and they've not embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in him, and they've not turned from trying to do good things. They've not seen Christ for being all sufficient as a savior. Open their eyes to see that what he accomplished on the cross is all we need. And to give their life faithfully to serve him, trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit who has been poured out into our hearts to pursue obedience to the word because you have changed us and transformed us by your grace. Do that work that you alone can do in human hearts. We look forward to that and the fruit of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.